Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Mitzvah of the Month. This month, we find ourselves in Parshat Mishpatim, which is in the middle of the book of Exodus of Shemot. We just finished the narrative of the Exodus, which was, of course, the Passover story. We did Shirat Hayam, the crossing of the sea. We have gone to Yitro last week, which was the Ten Commandments, Revelation, chapter 19 in the Torah and the book of Exodus, one of my favorite chapters. And now we get to Mishpatim. It's an interesting um, comparison between the Ten Commandments of Sarat Hadibrot of Yitro, the revelation of Mount Sinai, and then literally the next week you get to all the minutiae, dozens and dozens of mitzvot. In fact, a large percentage of the entire mitzvot of the entire Torah come from this one parsha of Mishpatim. And so when we say the mitzvah of the month is justice, you might be thinking from the book of Deuteronomy in Parshat Shoftim, Tzedek, 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 justice, justice, we shall pursue. But there are plenty of different options that you can speak about justice in this Parsha of Mishpatim. Just to give you an example of some of the other mitzvot that we won't be speaking about today is, for instance, the prohibition to curse a judge, the prohibition of blessing God, that actually means the opposite, it means the prohibition or using God's name in vain. Lots of different prohibitions, but then there's also some obligations. For instance, the obligation Shvita Shabbat to rest on Shabbat. Hopefully that's a good one that we all enjoy. The obligation regarding Shemitah of the land. Shemitah is the seventh year in the land of Israel that the land should lie fallow. And there are many different laws that are required to do specifically land-based in the land of Israel as opposed to outside of the land of Israel, which we in the diaspora do not um, partake in. But I chose two that we're going to look at just momentarily. And the first deals with tzedakah, which I would say translated has the root um, justice, tzedek, but it's different. So this one's found in Exodus 22, verse 24, if you do have a chumash of Eitz Chaim, it's found on page 469. In Hebrew, it says, Im kesef talve et ami et ha'ani imach, lo tiyelo kenoshe, lo simun alav neshech. In English, if you lend money to my people, meaning God's people, to the poor among you, do not act toward them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. So the question or the difference between tzedakah and this mitzvah is lending. So obviously we know, right, if we see somebody in need, we give them a, uh, we give them a granola bar, or we give them a couple of pennies, a dollar, something, right, when we see a homeless person. But what is the difference between tzedakah and then what we see here, where im kesef talve etami, if you lend money to somebody. So the difference between giving a donation, a nedava, and the difference between lending. And so we're going to dive into this mitzvah for a moment, and I'm going to read from you from Sefer HaChinuch, which is the book of education, which goes into the roots of the mitzvah, and then goes into the um, reasons why we have this mitzvah. So Sefer HaChinuch makes a distinction between these two different types of people, right? The person that you see, for instance, at the red light, holding a sign, unfortunately, saying, help. 
and the other person who is asking for a loan. The real question the rabbis ask is, why does God make this a mitzvah? First, you have to look at the first word of that sentence, and it's im, if, im kesef tavayatami. And we're going to look at that uh, part in just a moment as well. So earlier in the Torah, we see that the mitzvah is to give people money, right? In every, uh, on Shabbat, in our day schools, in our religious schools, in our homes, we light the candles, we do the grape juice, we do the motzi, but we also give tzedakah before Shabbat. We give tzedakah many different times. Before Pesach, ma'ot chitim. We uh, give tzedakah so that people can have matzah for Passover. For, um, for Purim, we do mishloach manot and matanot le'evyonim. We give gifts to the poor. For Hanukkah, the Shulchan Aruch, the law code tells us that even a poor person should go and find a candle in order to light the Hanukkiah. There are so many different times in our tradition that we give tzedakah and are commanded to. But again, the distinction between here and all the rest, it's on page 469, verse 24, is that here, what do we do with somebody that's asking for a loan? And the slight distinction is this that the Sefer Achinuch makes, and I think it's really beautiful. <clears throat> for somebody who is poor, and it doesn't give the actual definition of poor, but the Sefer Achinuch, the rabbis say, the definition of a poor person is somebody who you already know basically resorts to begging. That is not as shameful as an act as the one who is on the verge of becoming poor with a loan and can turn their life around, right? The person who we know, and I'll just give you a real life example I remember in college when I was at Columbia in the seminary, lived on 120th and uh, Amsterdam in the Upper West Side. And there was a man who was on the corner, his name was Kevin, everybody knew Kevin. And I was 17 years old, going on 18, just to move to New York City. And I didn't give Kevin the time of day. I was scared. What if he was going to ask me for something? I didn't have it. Um, and then I, one time he approached me, because he would see us walking to class every day. And he uh, said, like, do you have a problem with me? Is there something wrong? And it really awoke me to realize that he's a human being and he's there and I'm there. And it got even uh, more interesting when my roommate actually uh, gave him his winter coat um, right during the winter season. And Kevin, who had nothing, uh, wrote him a thank you note. And it was a beautiful moment. I didn't expect to say the story, but hearing this mitzvah sort of uh, brought me back to that. And it changed my, not my attitude, but perhaps my actions in terms of understanding what it means to really give tzedakah as well. Um, even in this neighborhood, right? There's obviously a lot of people on the streets, but there's some people that you see who have their makom kavua, in fact, their established spot. Um, and so the person that is used to begging, right? The Torah tells us is not, and they use this word, not me, as shameful or embarrassing as an act that somebody who might be on the verge of that and is asking for a loan, and if we give them that tzedakah, then perhaps they will be in a better position that will then allow them to maybe repay, but at least to uh, continue with their life. And so the purpose of this mitzvah in the justice way is that we are helping turn a life around. So 
So I just want to read part of the Sefer HaChinuch, and it says this. Um, right. The person who is apprehensive about submitting to it, right? Now, if the latter would have the slight support of a loan, if this person would have just a loan, perhaps through the slight easing of the financial situation, they will be spared from having to beg. And it can be anticipated that when God will mercifully allow him a profit from the borrow of funds, he will repay it to his creditors and earn a livelihood from the remainder. Thus, by extending him alone, one may spare him the anguish of ever having to submit to begging. Therefore, our perfect Torah, they call the Torah perfect, cautions us about this and commands us to sustain a destitute person with a loan before he needs to resort to begging. As it says in the Torah, that when there is a, uh, um, a person who needs a loan. Um, now, that first word of the sentence is im. Im in Hebrew means if. And so then they say this. Each and every time you see the word im in the Torah, it means that it is optional. You don't have to do it, right? And in the mitzvot, there's all different things. There's Torah mitzvot, there's rabbinic mitzvot, and in rabbinic mitzvot, there's optional mitzvot, and there's the obligatory mitzvah. Except for three times when in the Torah you see the word im, it says it's obligatory. And this, they say, is one of those exceptions. Um, so it's not if you see somebody, just maybe think about it. The rabbis say, no, if you see somebody that needs a loan, then you actually do it. Um, and what is the purpose? I love Sefer Achinuch, the book of education, because it tells you the mitzvah, but then it gives you an underlying aspect of the purpose of the mitzvah. And this is what they say. The underlying purpose of this mitzvah is that the Almighty God, that those who God created be trained and accustomed in the trait of kindliness and compassion, for it is a laudable trait. So yes, you're doing it to obviously help the other person get on their feet, but the deeper reason is that we're helping ourselves have the laudable trait of kindness. And it goes even deeper. It says, by conditioning their physical selves with virtuous traits, they will become worthy of receiving God's goodness. So it's interesting because we often teach children that, you know, when I ask, how did you feel about doing that? We usually teach people to say, I felt good, but it's not about me, it's about them. And here, the rabbis actually be, seem to be saying, you know what, when you're doing the mitzvah to help somebody off their feet, it's actually sort of about you, that it's training you to be a better person. And I even go further by saying um, that the purpose of having people who need loans and tzedakah out there is to help us train ourselves, which is a little convoluted, um, but it is an interesting way of justice. I would say that maybe God could do other things than putting people who need financial assistance out there in order to make, you know, but maybe it's a test, right? And we see tests throughout the whole Torah. Avram had a test, Lech Lecha. Isaac had a test with the binding of Isaac. Jacob had the test with the resting of the angels. Moses has lots of tests. And perhaps it's our test in terms of justice, right? And it's interesting when, you know, we're in the car and my kids see somebody who needs the help, but we don't have a granola bar or a dollar on hand. I have to say, well, why didn't you help them, right? And it really sometimes takes somebody else who's uh, to witness that, to tell you, you know what? It's tap you on your shoulder and it's time to do that act of tzedakah. Finally, so it says another reason why God may, God may have chosen 
to have a poor person, right? We often don't think about that. We think about give tzedakah, but we don't think about why did this person become poor or become in the in the situation. So it says this. Sometimes there may also be another reason for this matter that God wishes to sustain the poor person only through the generosity of human beings due to the severity of the human being's sin in order that he may be chastised by two dimensions of pain. First, by enduring the shame of their peers and second, by the limitation of his sustenance. So this goes into more theodicy, theological conversation in the um, Talmud, in the uh, tractate of Brachot, the first section of the Talmud. There's something called Yisurin Shalahava, which means suffering of love, um, which I do not subscribe to, right? You say, oh, well, somebody is ill because God loves them, right? Or you hear the uh, theological framework of, well, you know, God gives me all that I can handle. Well, then give me something that I can't handle. I would prefer that over maybe love from God right now. Um, so the rabbis use perhaps that piece and like, oh, no, no, no. This person is actually being loved by God because of the suffering. Again, I don't subscribe to that. I'm giving a narrative of what the rabbis see because they're trying to explain this mitzvah. I do like the mitzvah, though, of im kesef tavei There's this fine line between if, if our small act can make a huge difference, right? And we'll never know that. And not until maybe later, later, later on, right? When somebody says, you know, that $1 that you got me for that slice of pizza got me through that day, but also allowed me to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so that's part one. That's one mitzvah. I want to fast forward to an interesting mitzvah as well. It's chapter 23, verse 2. I just want to illustrate different um, modes of justice. 23, verse 2, which is, sorry, 20, one second. Uh, yes, 471, chapter 23, verse 2. So how is justice acted out, right? And in this case, chapter 23, verse 2, it's also a contradiction, which the Torah is full of, but the rabbis try to explain away. In Hebrew, lo tie achare rabim lirot, velo te'ane al-riv lintot achare rabim lahatot. So you see this word twice, the word rabim, Rabim harbeh, it means a lot, it means many. In this case, it means a majority. They translate it as, you shall, not, you shall neither side with the mighty to do wrong, you shall not give perverse testimony in dispute so as to pervert it in favor of the mighty, nor shall you show deference to a poor man in his dispute. So by the way, you see this idea of this poor person coming up again and again and again in Parsha Mishpatim. But in this case, justice is or laws are made by the majority. However, there's a contradiction because the first part of the sentence says, You shall not side with the mighty to do wrong, meaning don't follow the mob, right? It says don't follow the mob, but at the same time, follow the majority. So I want to unpack that a little and what the rabbis say um, about this idea because it goes into Jewish law and honestly how we... Um, come up with a lot of the laws that we have today while also preserving minority opinions. Um, I'll give a little intro to Rabbi Daniel Hartman, who hopefully you'll uh, learn a lot from this coming week. 
um, as Abner and Roz Goldstein scholar in residence, but Rabbi Daniel Hartman just wrote this book called um, It's Who Are the Jews and Who Are We to Become? And a lot of the book, and I gave a sermon about this a couple weeks ago, is about Genesis Covenant and Exodus Covenant. That as a Genesis Jew, it's just who we are. We're Jewish because we're Jewish. Um, and he gives examples of that throughout the Torah. You don't have to do anything. The covenant is always there, even if you don't abide by the covenant. And he gives an example, right? Even if somebody converts out of Judaism, the rabbis say, nope, you can't leave us. Um, you're always Jewish no matter what. Um, and then the Exodus covenant is, even if you are Jewish by inheritance or by joining the Jewish people, the Exodus covenant is that now you have responsibility and what are you gonna do about it? And then he goes through basically every topic in modern Judaism, Zionism, interfaith marriage, um, denom denom denominations, and he explains which is Genesis and which is Exodus. The end of the story, I'll just give it a preview, hopefully you'll buy the book and hear a lot of from Rabbi Hartman, is that it has to be a combination of both. You have to belong to something, but then also be part of it. And the last line basically says is, what is this all about? Who cares? And the last words that he writes in his book is, this is our story. Do you, do you want to tell it? And it really makes you think of like, why do you want to be part of this? I was talking to a bar mitzvah student yesterday who's uh, bar mitzvah's coming off a couple of weeks and talking about Aaron the high priest and the garments that he wore. And uh, we talked about like, it's pretty miraculous that you're telling Aaron the high priest story 2000 years ago. Why do you want somebody to tell your story in 2000 years? Um, and so I bring this to your attention because Hartman actually speaks about the tolerant and the deviant. And at what point do we tolerate, for instance, a religious practice, accept another religious practice, or call something deviant that it's something that I can't even accept? And also this fine line sort of between, right, in Kesef Tavayatami, giving tzedakah and ask, having somebody who's having a loan. And the same case here. If everybody's doing something, is it the right thing to do? And so we're going to delve into this in just for a moment about how Jewish law is uh, brought about. So, according to the majority, shall things be decided. So again, that should mean if everybody's doing something, right? If everybody's eating um, cheeseburgers, then it must mean that it's okay and then we do it. Or do we say, no, the few are not doing it, it's the right thing, and then we convince them to do it, right? It's very interesting because there's another um, uh, rabbinic practice. It's called minhag nivatel halacha. It means custom overrides law, right? So if everybody in the community is doing something, at some point a custom becomes the tradition of the community. Um, there's very interesting... Uh, things that have happened throughout time. I'll just take something within here, right? Music on Shabbat, for instance, right? Um, now, again, there's lots of different things written about Jewish law and music, and in the temple they played music, but over time, specifically in the last century, um, music has been, and I mean instrumental music, by the way, has been introduced, reintroduced into services, specifically in the reform movement, but also the conservative movement. And then it has become more of an accepted practice. Um, but 
at Sinai, we're very blessed that we have different options, right? If you're not um, comfortable with instruments on Shabbat, then we have the family minion, which is traditional service. I love that we have these different pockets of everything. Um, so that Achare Rabbi Mohatot, that there's a, lots of different majorities that are happening um, at once as well. That's just one example. By the way, just as an aside, because I did my research on this, it's interesting when we say we introduce music into the services, but the original ban on music was not just instrumental, it was vocal as well. And so they, were, they would say, well, if we began to sing again, there's only one day of the year, and Jay knows this obviously, because he's an expert, um, only one day of the year that we do not sing our tefillot, and that is Tisha B'Av, right? It, we don't even say like Baruch Shemar Vaya. It's Baruch Shemar Vaya Haolam. It sounds weird. Actually, the strangest thing is when you do the Aleinu. It's the only day when we say the Aleinu, and it's hard to say because music is such a part of our. Right? If I ask my children to say the lyrics of their favorite song, they can't do it. Right? You can only sing the lyrics of your favorite songs. Um, so a little aside for the music, but I want to just go into about this majority and minority. So the clincher is this. The rabbis say, no, 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 it's not exactly how it looks. It's only the majority-minority piece when it's two scholars that are having a debate, not the regular people that are just walking around the street. In fact, they even go as far to say as this. This obligation of choosing the side of the majority, it would seem applies only when two chachamim, two wise people, have a disagreement and are equally knowledgeable in Torah wisdom. The distinction must be made, for one cannot say that the principle of following the majority dictates that a small group of wise men should not outweigh the opinions of a large group of amha'aretz, of ignoramuses. Surely the opinion of the wise people should be given greater weight. Even if the amha'aretz, the, the ignoramuses, is as numerous as those who left Egypt. So the rabbis are doing two things here. One, they're saying our voice matters, right? Because if you think about the Talmud, um, there's a lot of research behind this. This was not, this is a small group of men, mostly men, um, in Northern Israel or in Babylonia who were making the rules, if you wish, for the rest of the people. Um, and by the way, it's interesting even in Jewish life today, right? Um, the idea of rabbinic authority is very, very interesting, specifically between Ashkenaz and Svard. And by that, I, I mean the locations of Eastern Europe and Western Europe. I took a class in this at the seminary with Dr. Benji Gampel, and we had to read responses of community members, I mean, basically emails that they would send to their rabbis in the Middle Ages, and find out what was the real rabbinic authority. And it was interesting because in and also Dr. Rabbi Hartman also speaks about this too, about emancipation. Um, in Ashkenazic areas, let's say Poland, you're living in shtetls, in ghettos, and so you have a lot of authority in the walls of that town, but obviously not so much freedom as citizens of the land. Whereas in Sephardic lands, Muslim lands, Spanish, etc., um, you had less rabbinic authority because most of the people were within the court, right? Lots of famous Jews became high in the court, and so the rabbinic authority was less, and you were more of a citizen of the country. Um, I often asked, I used to do this with teenagers, would you define yourself as an American Jew or Jewish American? 
I think October 7th actually maybe changed that a little in terms of how we think about ourselves and what it means or maybe how other people see us. Um, but the authority of rabbinic figures is a very interesting trend. And now when you look at today, right, in the Orthodox community, for instance, I would say there's more rabbinic authority, whereas in non-Orthodox liberal um, Judaism, there's, yes, an authority in these walls, right? The rabbi is the Mara de Atra. Um, but if somebody goes out into the community, we can do what we want. Um, go back to the Genesis Exodus covenant, right? Um, how are we actually bound together? And so the rabbis say, no, 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 you know what? Even though we're just a few people, our opinion matters. And they follow the majority according to our majority, the fights that we're having inside, not according to what you all think and that a small group is doing in here. And so they go on to say, however, when two groups are equal in wisdom, right? So I don't know, you're at the LA board of rabbis and you have lots of rabbis sitting around the table or at least close to being equal, the Torah tells us regarding this case, the majority of minds will, as a rule, arrive at the truth with greater frequency than the minority. Furthermore, regardless of whether the majority does or does not arrive at the truth, according to the opinion of the individual who hears the decision, logic dictates that we may not diverge from the path set out by the majority. So this is interesting in terms of Jewish law today. So in the Orthodox community, we follow the Shulchan Aruch, where that law code is hundreds of years old. The conservative movement, we have the CJLS, the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards, where there are a group of rabbis who come together across the country. They write responsa. You can find them online, in fact, um, on all different topics. And then they have majority opinions and minority opinions. And then it's up to the rabbi of the synagogue to follow what they would be comfortable with. Um, so you even see, for instance, minority opinions being accepted by different communities as well. Because we all know, of course, like, and this is not just new in America today, but even Europe and the Talmud and Israel, that communities have different standards based on where they are, what the surroundings are, where they come from. And as Hartman says, uh, like, who are we to become as well? So the majority rule, right, is not the masses, it's actually the ruling party. I mean, it's sort of the same in terms of American politics that, you know, I don't, we have, actually we don't, let's take the Supreme Court, for instance, I'm not making a political statement, but I don't have a say necessarily in who and what the Supreme Court is doing. I don't elect the Supreme Court justices, but we do elect the people that do appoint the justices. And so, that, yes, they're going to go according to the majority of the wise people that are sitting there, not necessarily, obviously our voice matters in, in the way that democracy should. Um, and the same thing in Israel in the parliament, right? Pre-October 7th, we saw hundreds of thousands of people in the streets protesting in a democratic way. Um, then you have the majority in the Knesset that we're trying to influence to do that. Um, so perhaps it actually does work this way, um, that the wise people who are sitting around do have that impact. Hopefully, though, they are also listening to what we on the streets um, are saying as well. And so, Sefer Achinuch, although the relative wisdom of the parties must be taken into account, 
This is not the universal rule. So let me just read this part. This is what I have said, that the principle of choosing the majority applies only when two differing groups are equal in true wisdom. Surely we, okay, so that's, let me just pause there. So you have to be equal in the same wisdom. Um, one opinion of Sefer Achinuch, this book of education, is that we are obligated to live by the Torah according to the majority of the sages, even if the individual does not agree with that opinion. So let's all think about that for a moment as well, right? Why does somebody go to a synagogue? Or why does somebody leave that synagogue and go to the next synagogue, right? Because, you know what, I don't like how they do it there. Or I do like how they do it here. And then they go to that synagogue and they don't like how they do it there, so then they come back over here. Or we go back over there. We're human beings. It's, it's normal, right? And so it's a challenge, but I would say a uh, thing to strive for when even when an individual does not agree with the majority opinion, how you also continue to live within that community with those standards as well. Um, and I go back to, I keep, again, I just finished Robert Hartman's book. I can't wait till he comes here um, this Shabbat, but he really speaks about how we live in, I don't want to say conflict, but how we live in a world of differing opinions and how we can live in this Genesis covenant when we are all together bound by a people while also each of us having different Exodus uh, sensibilities, right? And so if we all had the same Exodus sensibilities, then we would all sort of be the same Jew, which by the way was the same pre-denominations, right? You were either Jewish or not. And by the way, this is a challenge in Israel. Uh, yesterday I had the opportunity to interview Yoav Brook, who's an Israeli swimming Olympian who now uh, does, uh, owns a travel company. And he came to this synagogue in this room and he saw all of the students in tefillot and prayer and the boys and girls sitting together um, and learning Torah together. And he said, what I am seeing here in this synagogue and in this country is what I am missing in, at home in Israel. And Hartman also says, when you are dividing the Jews in Israel, what do they say? Dati and Chiloni, religious and secular. But really people say Dati and Lodati. I am religious or I am not religious. And so they define themselves by what they are, by what they are not instead of what they could be. And that's why, for instance, actually, Many, many years ago at Zippy Livni, when she was the foreign minister, she told a bunch of conservative rabbis at a rabbinical assembly convention, um, we don't know you. And so if we don't know you, we don't know how to interact with you, right? What she meant was conservative Judaism was not strong in Israel. And so if we don't understand what it means, then we don't know how to make the rules accordingly, right? meaning most Israelis, it's a joke, but it's true. When they say, I, uh, what synagogue do you go to? They say, the synagogue that I don't go to is Orthodox. Or, sorry, the synagogue that I went, basically when I do go, I go to the, we call it the highest standard, right? And so I believe that 
when we talk about pluralism, we need more achare rabim lahatots. We need more voices at that table, and hopefully the wise people can come together and realize that there are different ways of doing it. Um, again, that's what I love about literally this physical place in this community, that we have different people come into our genesis under the Sinai umbrella with different exoduses, um, narratives that they come from, where whether it's a physical location, whether it's a spiritual location, you know, a conservative synagogue, you often hear, you know what, I didn't grow up with religion. I grew up with lots of religion. Oh, we're going to meet in the center. And I would prefer not to say, oh, I didn't, I had, but what are you actually together? What is that, what is that, uh, what does that look like in, in, that, in that new model? So when we look at these two mitzvot, we see two different things. And they seem very, very different, right? Lending somebody, and then according to the majority. But these are all a model of the justice system that the Torah gives us. There are, obvious, there are many obscure mitzvot in the Torah as well, with animals and ox and different things like that. But you have to remember, this parsha comes, as I said earlier, right after the Ten Commandments in Revelation, right? The people have no structure. What happens when they had no structure? Moses goes up the mountain and there's a golden calf. Um, but the... And I actually often compare this in, was it 2011? Uh, for the Arab Spring, right? The Arab Spring was a very exciting time in the world because dictators were overthrown and the people will rule by majority, right? But what happened? They didn't have a constitution. And so when they got their physical freedom, they had no um, intellectual freedom or intellectual peace to bind them. They had the Genesis and they didn't have the Exodus. What is so beautiful about our story as the Jewish people is that we leave Egypt and we get the physical freedom, which last class we talked about the different types of freedoms. We get to Mount Sinai and then we gain laws, but it actually is freedom because as we know, we wouldn't want to streets without stop signs, even though some people don't obey them. <laughs> um, but we need things in place or right when the red light goes out that's the time when actually we realize that we really do need the red lights that's when everybody starts being kind to each other um and so when we right we have the spirit we have the physical freedom we then have the spiritual freedom and after we get that then we need a way to actually put this all together and so it's i think it's pretty miraculous that just a couple of sentences after parshat yitro when we stood for the ten commandments and we get the basics now we get the deep dive into Mishpatim, which again, over 50 meets vote out of the 613 are just in this week's portion. So you can spend a lifetime just going through Mishpatim. If you're not a lawyer, which is me, then sometimes they're very difficult to even like comprehend. But what Sefer HaChinuch does is step back and says, no, let's look at the essence of this meets vote. Um, and so the first one, right? It's how these meets vote improve you as a person. Yes, I'm helping the person in need, but by helping that person, it does help me. And it is true, right? Any type of mitzvah that we do, number one, adds to our mitzvah points, but you do feel good, but then you also get in the, in the, uh, the rhythm of performing mitzvot. Again, I tell kids who are into sports, but not into religion, that most people, like, you can't hit a home run without taking a practice swings, right? You can't get a hole-in-one on a golf course without practicing. The same is true with our spiritual practice. And so when you practice in Kesef Talvei 
right? Then it's not just, oh, there's somebody for help. Maybe I'll do it or maybe I won't. It's the spiritual practice and why wouldn't I? And I think that's a beautiful spiritual practice to get into. And then again, we have this idea of who's making these rules, who's making this justice. So yes, we rely on the, I don't call it the wise, but the, uh, on the scholars of the community. But I would hope that the scholars also rely on the feeling of the community um, as well. So those are just two examples of Parshat Mishpatim. Hopefully you'll dive uh, deeper into that as well. Um, and then next month we'll be pushing towards the book of Vayikra of Leviticus, which is fascinating because those mitzvot, most of them are not relevant in our lives because it's called actually the Levitical Code. We don't have priests. We have some Kohanim here, <laughs> but we don't have the priests that we have in the temple. And so that question is, when Hartman asks, why tell our story? Why tell the story of our sacrifices and we don't have them and may not have them ever again? But as you'll see next uh, time, it's as important to tell the stories that we don't have so we know who we were, who we are, and most importantly, who we are to become. So if you are joining us this Shabbat, please uh, make sure to tune in. It will be streamed, but nothing like being in person with Rabbi Daniel Hartman, one of the premier Israeli scholars and philosophers that we have today. When a rabbi wants to learn, they go to Rabbi Hartman. So I'm excited that Rabbi Hartman will, uh, will be here as well. So have a wonderful day, wonderful week, and a Shabbat Shalom. Mm -hmm.